not while cheering for Novak Djokovic. It's a figment of his imagination. He said as much himself, that to psych himself up in the biggest moments and the biggest points of the biggest matches versus the man he considers his biggest rival. Djokovic imagines the fans packing the stadiums to see them play, chanting his name rather than one they're actually chanting. That of Roger Federer, the man, the myth, the legend, and one of the most graceful and gracious tennis champions of all time. It was never in doubt that Djokovic had the talent to be among the best ever. From the first of his 10 Australian Open titles at age 20, he announced he could hold his own with the rest of the big four, Federer, Andy Murray, and Rafael Nadal. He could match their fierce competitiveness, and as he was starting to establish himself as a possible player for the ages, he showed the same generosity and awareness of the moment in losing that his rivals would show from the champion's podium. Not only was he on the cusp of matching or surpassing his biggest rivals in terms of court achievement, but in off-court popularity as well. After Nadal defeated Federer in the 2009 Australian Open Finals, his fifth straight win over Federer, a streak that included one of the greatest matches of all time, the 2008 Wimbledon final that stretched into dusk, Federer broke down while giving his runner-up speech. Well, thanks for the support. I mean, you guys are unbelievable. Maybe I'll try later again. I don't know. God, it's killing me. Um. After Federer stepped away from the mic, Nadal accepted his trophy and the crowd's applause before putting his arm around Federer's shoulder and offering up some words of encouragement. Enough that Federer stepped back up to the microphone. I don't want to have the last word. This guy deserves it. <laughs> so, Rafa, congrats. You played incredible. You deserve it, man. Played another fantastic uh, final. So, all the best for the season. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. Well, first of all, uh, Roch, uh, sorry for today. I know, I know. Yeah, I, I really know how how you feel right now is really tough. But you remember, you are you are a great champion. You are you are one of the best of the history. You're gonna improve the the fortune of Santa for sure. Federer found himself on the other side of that interaction as he celebrated his 2012 Wimbledon Championship, his first major title in two and a half years, after a four-set victory over Andy Murray. For Murray, a Brit who considered winning Wimbledon a career dream, it was his fourth consecutive defeat in four career appearances in a Grand Slam final. Right, I'm going to try this and it's not going to be easy. He's done so well over the years, he's been so consistent and to me it shows that he cares so dearly about tennis, about this tournament and he'll at least win one Grand Slam, so this is, this is what I hope around it. A month later, Murray would win Olympic gold in London by beating Federer. He'd go on to defeat Djokovic in the 2012 U.S. Open for his first major title, and then beat him again in the 2013 Wimbledon final, to become the first British men's champion Wimbledon had seen in 77 years. Djokovic, a runner-up on the champion's home turf, could not have handled his loss any better. Definitely there is a lot of expectations from him and uh, to pull up uh, you know championship tournament this year after being in the finals and several several finals is a great achievement and I congratulate him uh, you know on my side I gave it all it was an absolute uh, pleasure and uh, an honor again to be part of this this uh, this match this final thank you. 
Here we are now, nearly a decade removed from Djokovic's remarkable runner-up speech. In the time since, Djokovic has surpassed Federer, including beating him in four major finals, leaving Federer stuck at 20 career majors. Murray won Wimbledon again in 2016, but has since undergone multiple hip operations and is no longer a title contender. For Nadal, despite winning his 14th French Open last year for a then-record-setting 22nd major championship, his body appears to be betraying him as well, a fact he acknowledged after a fourth-round loss at the U.S. Open in September. Tennis is, uh, is in a sport of uh, position a lot of times, no? and if not, you need to be very, very quick and very young, and, uh, and I, I am not in that uh, momentum anymore. He looked neither young nor quick, falling in the second round of the Australian Open. Djokovic, though, has yet to meet the same cruel fate that even some of his younger rivals are falling prey to. He just won his 10th Australian Open and heads to Roland Garros in May with a legitimate shot to pass Nadal for most career majors. Yet, there was a time not so long ago when it seemed as though Djokovic might never play in Melbourne again. And his deportation from Australia last year, in part for his refusal to get vaccinated against COVID, is only a small part of why Novak Djokovic should not, and by my estimation, will not, be celebrated as the greatest men's tennis champion of all time, no matter how many majors he eventually wins. I know PTI co-anchor Tony Kornheiser agrees with my assessment, given his summation for the 2022 Wimbledon final between Djokovic, and you never know what you're going to get with him, Nick Curious. I got this note from my friend Adam Mandel, and he said, who are you rooting for in terms of Kyrgios and Djokovic? He said the unvaccinated something or the maniac, whatever it was. <laughs> And I said, actually, I'm rooting for neither. To me, this is a Johnny Depp, Amber Heard situation. <laughs> and I would just say, get off my television. Get out of the tennis business. Just leave me alone. On this episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, where we won't just stick to sports because we don't have the privilege of doing so, we'll look at why Djokovic is worthy of such a withering assessment and why the only place he'll hear the raucous cheering of his name he so desires is in his dreams. The deportation and Djokovic's effective governmental disqualification from the 2022 Australian Open was but one chapter in a more than 18-month-long COVID saga for one of the world's most famous anti-vaxxers. The story begins with this prologue from a May 2020 Instagram Live in which Djokovic said, I've seen people and I know some people that, through that energetical transformation, through the power of prayer, through the power of gratitude, they managed to turn the most toxic food or most polluted water into the most healing water. Because water reacts, and scientists have proven that, that molecules in the water react to our emotions. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Not a single word of that gobbledygook gibberish stands up to scientific rigor. But I'm sure it was this power of magical thinking, plus the Serbian government's decision, with the lack of a serious virus uptick, to dispense with social distancing protocol that led Djokovic to believe he could put on a four-city tennis exhibition tour through Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina in June 2020. The tournament, he said, was intended to, quote, send a wonderful, strong, and positive message to the whole world, end quote. This, in the words of Washington Post reporter Liz Clark, is how the tournament 
unfolded. To my horror and the horror of anyone, you know, watching images or footage, you know, looking at what was happening there in, in, in Serbia when the tournament opened, zero effort to guard against the coronavirus. No mask wearing, no distancing, opening press conference there, the players, three of the top 10 players in the world seated side by side in front of a room full of reporters, no one wearing a mask. They're passing the microphone around. Then in the matches, you know, they're shaking hands, draping their arms around one another. Then comes footage at the disco and Belgrade. They're slithering around, you know, in a crowded dance floor without shirts. I mean, good for them having a good time, but this is the coronavirus. By the second weekend of the three-weekend tour, multiple players, Djokovic included, had tested positive for COVID, severely undermining his standing amongst his fellow players. I would just point this out, that the worst person in tennis, by far, Nick Kyrgios, said that Djokovic (laughs) was stupid. That guy can't stay on the court anywhere in the world because he's such a wild card dope. And he says that Djokovic is an idiot. Here's what Curious wrote on Twitter. Own had a decision to go ahead with the exhibition. Speedy recovery, fellas. But that's what happens when you disregard all protocols. This, he wrote in all caps, is not a joke. And yet to Djokovic, it did seem exactly that. Not the tournament or the fact that anyone got sick. He did apologize for the obvious to everyone but him outcome. But he did seem to think that COVID and the accompanying world protocol were some combination of conspiracy theory, joke, suggestions to be ignored, belittled, or navigated around. And this is how we get to the second time Djokovic had COVID. Maybe. There's a heavy gray cloud hanging over this entire incident that obscures most of the clarity that could be found in this story. I'll start by saying the Australian government's handling of this, which I initially cheered, definitely should be scrutinized further. After Djokovic initially announced he would not play because of the country's strict vaccine requirements, an announcement was made that Djokovic would be given a medical exemption. In a country that fully locked down at the start of the pandemic and had a 90% vaccination rate by December 2021, there was legitimate public outrage at the decision. It was reversed. But Tennis Australia then said, a COVID infection in the six months leading up to the event, accompanied by a doctor's note, would serve as a recognized medical exemption. According to Djokovic's visa application and a publicly reported timeline of events, he attended a basketball game on December 14th, an event that led to numerous reported positive COVID cases. On the 16th, Djokovic took a rapid test that came back negative, and he apparently was not feeling symptomatic, so he attended a public event with some children in which photographs were taken of Djokovic unmasked. That would be fine, except that Djokovic was also apparently waiting on the results of a PCR test. Why would he go and not, I don't know, reschedule the event? Djokovic told the BBC he understood the anger that he chose to go, adding, quote, I wanted to be there for the children. I know how much it means to them for me to give them the award. And maybe as a bonus take-home prize, the kids could say, Hey, Mom, Novak Djokovic gave me COVID. The next day, rather than reschedule or make alternate plans, Djokovic showed up for an in-person interview with a French media outlet. 
According to news reports, Djokovic did not tell the reporter or photographer about the outstanding test, although there is some finger pointing as to who's to blame for that being the case. But you're awaiting test results and know you might have been exposed. You also say you canceled the rest of your public schedule, yet you go ahead with two scheduled in-person events anyway. Dude, what the f***? At some point that same day, the PCR test came back positive, followed by a negative test on the 21st. However, the BBC has placed that timeline in question because the test submitted to the Australian authorities had a glaring inconsistency in terms of the test serial numbers at the top of the documents. The number on the positive test was out of sequence in relation to the serial number on the negative test Djokovic submitted with his visa paperwork. The BBC collected data from as many Serbian test certificates as possible to plot a chronological serial code timeline. Djokovic's positive test was the only outlier on what was otherwise a straight chronological timeline, suggesting it had occurred between December 25th and 28th, rather than on the 16th. Serbian authorities told the BBC that Djokovic's COVID tests were authentic, but neither they nor Djokovic provided any explanation for the discrepancies identified in the test certificates. It may not have mattered as Djokovic was also found to have untruthfully attested on his visa application not to have traveled anywhere during what should have been a 14-day quarantine based on Australian protocol. However, social media posts proved that to be false. He had not simply phoned from Spain via Dubai to Australia during that period. He'd also been to Serbia. Djokovic blamed human error by one of his agents who was responsible for logistics and the immigration forms, adding, I always did the right thing. Had he actually done the right thing, the BBC would have filed a different report than this on Djokovic's 2022 Australian Open experience. The Australian Open is about to begin in Melbourne. Without its defending men's champion, Novak Djokovic has been deported after losing his legal challenge to the cancelling of his visa. The judges ruled in favour of the Australian government, who said his refusal to be vaccinated against COVID made him a threat to public health. This is what the eventual 2022 Australian Open champion, Rafael Nadal, told CNN when asked for his reaction to Djokovic's deportation. I really believe in, in vaccination. I respect him, but when you make your decisions, then there is... Uh, some consequences now, and I really wish him all the very best. Also, unlike Djokovic, Nadal has never lost his composure on court. He's humble, honest, forthright, and carries himself in the manner of someone you'd want your child to look up to. In a May 2021 60 Minutes interview, Nadal's asked how many rackets he's ever broken. Grinning, he forms a circle with his thumb and forefinger, indicating zero then goes on to explain this in translated Spanish. My family, they wouldn't have allowed me to break a racket. For me, breaking a racket means I'm not in control of my emotions. This segment of the interview begins with a shot of Djokovic smashing his racket against the court three times in rapid succession before flinging it away in disgust. His inability to channel his negative emotions on court cost him a chance at the 2020 U.S. Open title, as explained by ABC News reporter Adrian Banker. He was undefeated. Now he's out. The number one tennis player in the world ousted from the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic hit a ball out of anger from the court, frustrated after losing a point to Spain's Pablo Carreño Busta, accidentally striking a lineswoman in the neck. You can see the star player immediately running over as she collapsed 
to the ground to see if she was okay. Medics running to the court to attend to her. Wait, 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 guys, we've got a problem here. Within minutes, judges determined she could not return to the match and neither can Djokovic, the top-seeded player thrown out of the tournament. He shook Busta's hand and left quickly without speaking to anyone. A year later, after a stunning defeat at the hands of Alexander Zverev in the Olympic semifinals, Djokovic again faced Karina Busta, this time with a bronze medal on the line. After falling behind two sets to none on the way to a straight sets defeat, Djokovic, who appeared to still have his semifinal defeat at the top of his mind, while watching his chances of winning an Olympic medal slipping through his hands, launched his racket into the empty stands. Soon thereafter, he annihilated another racket, smashing it to smithereens on the court. After the loss, he would punctuate his Olympics by standing up his mixed doubles partner, Nina Stojanovic. Citing injuries, he failed to even take the court, allowing Australians Ashley Barty and John Pierce to take the bronze medal in a walkover. This would be terrible behavior on its own, but what made it exponentially worse was that it came on the heels of a whole bunch of sanctimonious bullcrap about what it means to perform under immense mental, physical, and emotional pressure. Shortly before his meltdown to end all meltdowns, that would have, as San Francisco Chronicle columnist Ann Killian noted, left Djokovic ejected or possibly arrested had there been fans in the stands, Simone Biles, U.S. star gymnast and perhaps the best ever at her sport, announced she was withdrawing from her remaining Olympic events. She was, she wrote in an Instagram post, suffering from what's referred to in her sport as the twisties. I seriously cannot comprehend how to twist, Biles wrote. Strangest and weirdest thing as well as feeling. Literally cannot tell up from down. What's even scarier since I have no idea where I am in the air, I also have no idea how I'm going to land or what I'm going to land on. Head, hands, feet, back. For comparison's sake, imagine jumping off a high dive without knowing if there is water in the pool. USA Gymnastics released a statement noting Biles' decision came in consultation with medical staff and read, We remain in awe of Simone, who continues to handle this situation with courage and grace, and all of the athletes who have stepped up during these unexpected circumstances. Expressing a complete and utter lack of empathy, Djokovic had this to say, If you are aiming to be at the top of the game, you better start learning how to deal with pressure and how to cope with those moments on the court and off the court. After his on-court disaster, Djokovic's tune had changed. We're all human beings, he said. Sometimes it's difficult to control your emotions. No As Killian wrote, nice coping, Joker. This is how Washington Post reporter Liz Clark summarized the entire spectacle that was Djokovic's last few days at the Tokyo Olympics. After a fairly sanctimonious mansplaining of what it means to play under pressure <laughs> to Simone Biles, yeah. he emulates at the Olympics, you know, the stage of brotherhood and valor and, you know, it was fair play and sportsmanship ostensibly. I mean, symbolically, that is not the place to lose your cool. As noted earlier, you'd never see anything close to such a display from Nadal. As for Federer, he struggled early in his career to contain his emotions and temper on court. His recently published biography by Christopher Clary of the New York Times notes that his efforts to dial down his emotions may well have cost him the very thing that could have propelled him past Nadal and Djokovic in his most famous and agonizing losses. 
but perhaps, the book notes as well, those very losses and his reactions to them are what lent Federer the humanity that made him the tennis goliath no one rooted against. The member of the Big Four, most likely to boil over in frustration like Djokovic, as it so happens, is my favorite player among the Big Four, that being Andy Murray. At first, I didn't like him because he'd often be skulking around the court, having lost his temper, again, berating himself and occasionally subjecting his racket to a no-holds-barred smashing. But his on-court behavior never compared to the depths of Djokovic, and off the court, he's an entirely different person. He's shown his humanity in how he handled his Wimbledon loss to Federer, and the decidedly unmacho way in which he announced his first retirement right before the 2019 Australian Open. He led off his press conference by saying his hip had left him in tremendous pain for the previous 20 months. I said to my team, look, I think I can kind of get through this until until Wimbledon. That is where, where I would like to... That, that, that's where I would like to stop, um, stop playing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm also not certain I'm able to do that. It was a raw and unguarded self-reflection, an emotional honesty that few athletes publicly exhibit, particularly when Murray started crying at the end of the statement and then continued for 20 seconds after being asked if the 2019 Australian Open might be his final tournament before answering that yes, it could well be. He's been just as honest and direct in routinely speaking up against the predominantly sexist manner with which the sport of tennis treats women. In fact, a Guardian column from 2019 written by Jacob Steinberg ahead of that year's Australian Open is titled The Unapologetic Feminism that turned Andy Murray into a global icon. Sam is the first U.S. player to reach a major semifinal since 2009. How would you describe Male player. The... I beg your pardon? Male player, right? Yes, yeah. first male player. Murray was referring there to Serena Williams, who at that point in 2017 had won the Wimbledon title four times since 2009. The reporter had been asking about American men's semifinalist, Sam Querrey. Murray's advocated for equal prize money for both men and women, perhaps ironically finding himself on the opposite side of this issue from Djokovic, who's publicly said men deserve and should receive more prize money than women. And in 2014, Murray made huge headlines by hiring former world number one and two-time Grand Slam champion Amelie Moresmo as his coach. Fellow tour members and their coaches, Murray told Sky Sports, would say things to him like, quote, I can't believe you're playing this game with the media. You should tell them tomorrow you're considering working with a dog. In the end, Murray got the last laugh, or bark, so to speak. In an on-court interview with Jim Courier at the Australian Open, this is how Murray described working with Moresma. A lot of people criticized me working with her. I think so far this week we've, we've showed that, you know, women can be very good coaches as well. Uh, <laughs> Madison Keys, who reached the semis here and had her best term, is also coached by, by a woman in Lindsay Davenport. And I see no reason why that can't can keep uh, moving forward like, like that in the future. So I'm very thankful for Amelie for doing it. It was, 
I would say a brave uh, choice from, from her to do it, and hopefully uh, I can repay her in a, a few days. By the time the two split early in 2016, after two years, Murray was ranked number two in the world and on his way to the best season of his career, one in which he'd win Wimbledon for the second time and take over the world number one ranking from Djokovic. And yet, for all he accomplished with Moresmo, Murray said his biggest regret was not winning a Grand Slam title during their partnership. He added, quote, I feel like she was harshly judged by a lot of people, just purely because she was a woman. In an interview with The Guardian, this is what the great Serena Williams, not one known to mince words, said of Murray. I do not think there is a woman player who is not totally supportive of Andy Murray. He has spoken up for women's rights, especially in tennis, forever. She added, he has done so much for us on our tour. We love Andy Murray. This is Serena Williams talking. Need I say more? For some reason, that clip of Murray correcting the reporter who asked him about Sam Querrey has been constantly showing up in my Instagram feed. When I went to search for it, I landed on Murray's Instagram page, where his bio was set to a UNICEF drive to raise money to protect children in Ukraine who've been cruelly and brutally victimized by Vladimir Putin and Russia's atrocious and inhumane war. Somehow, even this issue, which in my estimation has only one correct side, Djokovic has managed to get wrong. Djokovic grew up in the shadows of war. There are interviews of both him and his coach describing how they would search the crater-strewn landscape of Belgrade, Serbia for a usable practice court, and how the great defensive elasticity of his game came from trying to judge how the tennis ball would bounce off an explosion-formed pothole. Having lived through a decade-long war that cleaved Yugoslavia in three, Djokovic well knows the horrors of war. He and his family were well aware that Tennis Australia had banned Russian flags from the open, and the reason why they did so. Not to mention the fact that Djokovic was, to some extent, lucky that Australia led him into the country to play the Australian Open this year. After his deportation last year, he could have been banned from entering the country for three years, something that certainly would have avoided this all-around embarrassment. On the second Thursday of the tournament, Djokovic's father appeared in a video outside Rod Laver Arena with some fans waving Russian flags and right smack next to a man wearing a shirt with the Z symbol that's been used to signal support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Given Serbia's close political ties with Russia and the fact that support for the Russian invasion is significantly higher than the rest of Europe, I can make an educated guess as to where Djokovic's father's alliance lies in this war. But still, read the room here. Djokovic went into damage control immediately, saying of himself and his father, We are against the war. We will never support any violence or devastating that is for the family, for people in any country that is going through the war. Although he said his father did not intend to offer support for Russia or the war, his words don't assign blame of any kind and thus won't upset his home base of Serbian fans. While I'm not a fan of the kind of statement that doesn't land firmly on either side, I understand it. And that would have been fine if Djokovic had just let it stand at that. But there was more. Of the negativities faced with fans trying to disrupt his matches and the criticism that came with his refusal to get vaccinated for COVID-19, Djokovic told the New York Times, It's not pleasant for me to go through this with all the things I had to deal with last year and this year in Australia. It's not something that I want or need. 
the circumstances he's dealt with at the Australian Open both last year and this year are entirely of his own making and were under his control. It didn't have to be this way, and yet the passive voice he uses in talking about the negative circumstances make it sound to me like he was shirking any and all responsibility, as though everything had happened to him, not because of him. And my reaction was, oh, come on, come the on. Seriously? He cannot ever be the face of tennis. Not over Federer and Dollar Murray, even if he ends up with more major titles and more weeks at number one than any of the rest of them ever will. Next to them, Djokovic is shrunken in stature, the absolute least of the big four. And I'd suggest that if he wants to hear fans cheering for him again, that he go back to sleep. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Jake Williams. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend and leave a review and rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening.